So now you started out right as an academic, a graduate student, mm -hmm. and but did not go follow that sort of academic path to become a scientist. You then went off and did business instead. Was that the plan from the beginning? It was interesting. I I, um, I, I, I took my GREs. I did. I got to graduate school. I got good, very good recommendations to, to start my PhD. Um, it was the opportunity cost of the PhD that, frankly, was was uh, was difficult to swallow. At the time, I was uh, consulting in the computer industry. And, and this was when? 1999? 2000. So, well, internet bubble. Internet bubble, yeah. And uh, and I looked at the opportunity cost of being out of school for two or three years, and plus the cost of tuition. And then I tried to amortize that cost over the rest of my working career. And I, the break-even point when I think was when I was 68. And I, I'm not gonna, it, it's too, it was too far out. If it was a five-year payback, I would've done it. This, we're talking, at that time, we are talking about a 35-year payback. Well, see, in my, in my case, I'm a biologist, right? Yeah. So there was no internet bubble for me. Yeah, right. And I actually was, when I went to graduate school, yeah. I was stepping up from waiting tables and working yeah. in a tape library. Uh, I actually worked in a tape library. Yeah, tape, I, we worked, I, I worked at Lexmark. Oh, yeah. uh, they had these accounts for Eckerd, the drug company, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. that had prescriptions, yeah. those kinds of things. And so we actually worked side by side with the robot that was about to replace us. Nice. It's name was Conan. <laughs> and so I was making like six bucks an hour. Yeah. And so, you know, believe it or not, graduate school was a step up for me. So yeah. I was making more money as a graduate student nice. uh, than I had ever made before. Yeah. And so it's just completely different if you come in from a different field. I mean, I loved it. I, I, I loved my graduate school experience. I, you know, I thought it was great. And eventually, you know, when I, I think when things slow down, I will go back and do a PhD. I, I really liked the, uh, the the intellectual effort you have to do. See, work is most computing work in the business world is is generally a test of your patience. Um, you know, it's it's how well you cooperate with you know, other people to get things done. But generally speaking, I think. I think it's fair to say, and I love my job. I'm generally not dealing with uh, you know NP hard, intractable problems on a daily basis, right? The problems that that most business people need to be solved, that need to solve, generally can be solved in a straightforward way. But the stuff that you deal with in academia is are, are literally some unsolvable problems where you're looking for heuristics, you know, or you're looking to tune an algorithm to get the best possible performance, and that's a it's a different kind of intellectual challenge. I, yeah, definitely. I remember in graduate school, when I would go to people and ask them for help, they would be like, nah, I don't know. You know, this is what, that's what research is. The whole point. There's no solution to this solved problem. That's your job. I remember, I remember one time, so I, I, did a, uh, I did a study of a dynamic programming heuristic. And I was new to dynamic programming at the time, so this was like first year of graduate school. And I remember sitting in my outside of my instructor's office for the better part of a week, literally walking through how the algorithm worked with a pencil and a sheet of paper until I actually understood it. And I remember the moment that I finally understood how dynamic programming worked because I was trying to work it on a small column. Like, yeah, now I get it. And then I also understood the value of graduate school at that exact time. So, okay, now I can solve lots of problems because I know, generally speaking, how the algorithm works, right? So nobody, nobody told me how to solve the problem. They told me how to learn to solve the problem.
Exactly. <laughs> that was what graduate school is. That was the difference from undergraduate. I mean, honestly, yeah. I kind of coasted through undergraduate school. Kind of you're memorizing facts. You're getting you know big concepts, right? You're... Yeah. And then I go to graduate school, and I actually had to learn how to think. It's all about learn, exactly. And it was very, it was very different. Such the very different setup. The funniest thing to me was I tell, I tell people this all the time. I love graduate school. I thought it was great. The um, graduate school is more like work. Undergrad is, is just like high school in, in, a, in a lot of ways. And it's that you're memorizing facts. You have to go to classes you don't necessarily like because you're getting a four-year degree. Graduate school is much more like work where you can negotiate with people and um, on things, everything from like, you know, the deadline for a paper to what you're working on in a given week or day. Um, and it's much more relaxed. So if anybody's listening that hasn't been to graduate school, graduate school is wonderful. You should go to graduate school. Except for the fact that uh, graduate school is also probably the hardest you have ever worked in your life. Yeah, there's, I, it, it, actually, yeah, it, it, in terms of mental breakdown, I probably came closest to that the last month of my thesis than I ever had in my entire life. That yeah, was, I, actually <laughs> had to, I actually had to leave town and go hang out with my friend Corbin, who I will also be interviewing very soon. Yeah. Uh, and I had to stay in his, I had to stay with him and I would go to his lab, and I would work on my thesis, and he would bring me coffee at two in the afternoon, yeah. and pat me on my head and say, it will be okay. So I was, uh, I was finishing up my thesis. I had a full-time job. My daughter was just born, and so she was less than six months old, and I was trying to finish the thesis. And my thesis, my master's thesis, was somewhere around 300 pages. Wow, and, and you actually got a patent out of your master's thesis. I got a patent out of it, yeah. So, so the, uh, the algorithm that we came up with in, my, in, in graduate school uh, actually was the uh, the best of its kind at the time. It's since been surpassed, but it's still really good um, for solving my particular problem. So my uh, walking into my thesis defense, um, my university asked me to sign the papers to get the patent. So, um, so that was pretty cool. That is cool. Because, yeah, really again, I mean, bi people are now doing patents in biology, yeah. but it's... This was back in 2000, yeah. yeah this, this was 10 years ago, a long ago now. Sitting here, uh, having listened to you doing the podcast, and I'm sitting here talking to Len now, and, and Len is, if you haven't picked up from the way he talks, a bundle of nervous energy. <laughs> and so the, the other thing that, I'm, uh, that he was talking about on his podcast, and that uh, you notice looking around the room here, uh, looking at the old, the old race tags and things, that Len, Len runs marathons, right? That's right. And half marathon is my favorite distance, but I, I do run the occasional marathon. And I get talked into running the occasional marathons, put it that way. So, and, and I heard you say before that on one of those marathons, I don't know if it's the first one or not, but yeah. one of those marathons, you dehydrated and almost died. Yeah, so I, um, so my first marathon, I trained really, really well, but I live in North Carolina, right? And when I'm training, the marathon I was running was in January, so it's a winter race. When I was training in North Carolina, the average temperature that I was running in was like 30 degrees. I mean, I literally the the week before I, uh, the week before I went down to Florida, which is where I ran the race, it was 15 degrees. Because you ran it at Disney World, right? Yeah. So I go to Florida to run the race, and it was 71. So it was it was 40 degrees warmer than the average temperature that I normally run at, and I, I didn't know how to compensate for that. So I um, apparently I didn't I didn't hydrate enough before the race, and I wasn't used to the temperature. So I got to mile 20. And my, actually my back started, I felt my back starting to tighten up, or I thought it was my back, it was actually my kidneys, um, around mile 15. And by mile 18, I noticed I wasn't sweating. And then I started getting nauseous and headaches and stuff, and I stopped at mile 20. But they were really great about it. They, um, they brought paramedics in, 
then the first question they ask you is whether you want um, you want to get taken off in the stretcher because if you do, then your race is over. So I was like, no, 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 I'm gonna, you know, I, I think I'm gonna be okay. You know, I knew I was dehydrated because um, I was in decent shape. So I actually took it actually took me an hour to walk one mile, which tells you how dehydrated I was. My head was pounding. Um, actually, I had to sit down a lot. But they were cool. They were cool though. Various officials stayed with me. The paramedics stayed with me. Got me to a tent. Gave me forty ounces of fluid. Um, you have 40 ounces of You drank a 40. I drank a 40 on my race. And it took like an hour to kick in, so that's two hours literally doing nothing in the race. Um, but I, at the end of the second hour, the headache had gone away. I started to feel good. I grabbed two bottles of Gatorade with me, so I had another 64 ounces of fluid. Um, and I ran the rest of the race. The only other marathoners that I know mm -hmm. are also scientists, academics. So. You think there is there a is there a running personality? Do you think yeah, the the obsessive compulsive thing? Yeah, uh, well, I didn't want to go there exactly, yeah, but, might, but might maybe be, you tend to be. I mean, you tend to be. Uh, you, I think if you're if you're a scientist, right, you're always looking for limits, right? You're always looking to see what you can do. Um, and I think running is a is an example of that. Plus, there are health benefits, right? Um, number one, it clears your head. By the way, you can get away for an hour and run, and you know, not have to either you have to think through your problems or not think about them, depending on what kind of person you are. Um, but there are health benefits, and then you know, I mean, the, the benefit of running a marathon or a, long, uh, uh, a timed race is that you you get to test how uh, you know you, how strong you are mentally. So, have you ever read any of the stuff about? Uh, there's a there's a bunch of good research out there now, sort of basically showing that humans like running because humans are. Like wolves and hyenas yeah. and dogs, distance predators. Yeah, we're just, yeah so we, we we run things down. Have you ever read any of that stuff? I have actually. So uh, yeah, so it, I, I think it's I think it's interesting. The um, I don't like running long distances. I don't know why, I don't know how I picked this as a hobby, but uh, yeah, I've read, I've read the same thing. And I've also heard I've heard barefoot running is better better too. Yeah, there's a there's I haven't a, I haven't tried that yet. To me, the neat thing about it is all the adaptations that humans have sure. for running distances that then suddenly caused you to, caused you to make sense. That otherwise, uh, sweating. Sweating. Running doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, unless you unless you need to cool off over long distances, like running through Africa, right? And during the day. <laughs> All of a sudden it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's true. The um, Or working outside in the tobacco fields in Kentucky during the summer. <laughs> Yes, yeah, really helps then too. But yeah, you look at the look at the way that the uh, your, your feet are, are formed too, and the uh, the way that your legs are are uh, made to uh, or adapted to um, absorbing the shock of running. So I know the people that I know who are runners have really adopted sort of the engineering kind of mindset of let's optimize our shoes, let's optimize right. our diet. Do you also, well, I don't know about diet. It kind of it's yeah. the last thing for me, but no, not really. Um, but like, yeah. I'm curious as to how much the running community has sort of hopped onto this idea that oh, we this is what we were designed to do. Oh yeah, definitely. Or have, is it more like always? Well, humans are really terrible at running, but uh, I'm just going to do it anyway and and push and sort of push the limits to try to be better at it. It's funny. I think I think anyone that runs anyone that runs for any length of time will hit a point where they realize that that their bodies can do more than they thought they could do. So for me, it was like the first time I ran three miles. You know, three miles was the distance. And I was like, if, it, you know, I, it, I'd been running like, you know, one mile, two miles, two and a quarter miles. And then one day I ran three miles and it was 
pretty much effortless. And and I, I realized that you know I had the right shoes, I had hydrated right that day, I had eaten right, and it was you know I had the right music on my iPod and everything, and it was really you know effortless. The the temperature was right, I had, you know good posture and everything, and the breathing and everything was down. And you realized that you could you could do that, you could actually keep going. And then from then it was just a quest to see how far you could actually run. So you know could I run six miles? Well, could I run ten miles? Well, could I run a half marathon? And then uh, you should see farther. And, you know, I tell people, if you have the cardio endurance and the muscle strength to run three miles, you could probably run a marathon, depending on how much time you want to put into it. Conceptually, there's there's little difference between running three miles and running 26. And so I would never even get to the three miles because I was always a, <laughs> I was always a sprinter. So I, I would never have done the three miles. The closest thing I ever had was a day on the beach mm-hmm. where I was running barefoot, yeah. and the you know the salt air and the humid and the wind and everything was just like you feel like you're flying almost and it only lasted a minute or two and then i of course pooped out the key is to uh, is to not run too fast so the things you want to watch when you're running distances don't start off too fast because you'll burn um glycogen so you'll burn all your body's store sugar too fast you don't want that and then once you hit your um your body's ability to uh to um absorb oxygen once your body can't keep up with that, then, uh, then it's going to be a miserable day. So the, the key is to, to run so that you can maintain a steady um, uh, level of glycogen or sugar in your body, and then um, try and stay just below what your uh, oxygen threshold is when you run, so that you, you never feel out of breath. Because once you feel out of breath, then you either have to slow down, and then it gets miserable. And, yeah. Right, so I was always of the like the cheetah, right? Yeah. Where they run really fast and then they fall over. Yeah, like because they've got no they've got no oxygen left in their blood and they have to just lay there and recover. Yeah. But I never thought about sort of deliberately keeping myself yeah. below that. So as a as a runner, that's the, one of the key things you want to do. Like the first mile or so, you want to keep telling yourself to slow down. That you know it's a long race and you don't want to go out and, and do it. So you don't want to go out too fast. Because once you kick, once you hit the oxygen debt, you can't get it back. You can, it just takes time. But then your sugar, sugar is the big, the big thing. So your blood sugar level, if, if it drops, if you use up all the glycogen in your muscles, you're not going to get it back, not in 10 minutes or an hour, right? Once you once you use that up, so the key is to... Because then your liver has to make more of it. Yeah, and, and it, that only, it only does it at a certain pace, right? So, um, and typically you're not eating a big enough meal before the race, right before the race to do that. So you um, you want to you maintain as, as long as you can, so... In thinking about heading back to get a PhD, I mean, do you look at that? Or do you look at your career sort of as a marathon kind of thing, or do yeah, you just I mean, spend every day going, "I'm going to do everything I can today," and then? Well, I think we definitely take the long, the long view of things. So, and the good thing about academia is, it, it's not like there's a set time limit, right? My my academic career doesn't expire, you know, it didn't expire when I turned forty, so it doesn't really matter, right? Uh, I could go back and do it at 50, and at the end of it, I'm still, they still call me you know, Dr. Testa, right? So um, that was good. The, um, the advantage, I think, of, of doing the business thing was um, it, it gives you sort of a perspective on how to work better and more efficiently. I think, I think it's really good, actually, for, for, for undergrads to take like a year off and actually work before they go to graduate school. That's what I always tell my students. Very few people ever listen to me. Go work. Yeah, because, you, number one, you learn... You, you learn things like taking direction. If your boss tells you, you know, I need three pages, I need this Excel spreadsheet done by tomorrow, what he really means is by tomorrow that Excel spreadsheet should be done, right? There's no, there's no mincing of words, right? 
So, uh, and, and, you know, people, some people don't get that. Some people think that that's a suggestion. Well, it's not really a suggestion, it's a requirement. And once you, once you learn that, right, once you learn how to get along with people, how to ask people for help, how to network, you know, your academic career is so much easier. And that's one of the problems that I bumped into. Okay, aside from the fact that I teach undergraduates and everything is, they believe, a negotiation. <laughs> you know. Every deadline is a negotiable so, thing. So, yeah, again, it's not. Because yeah, yeah. they, you know, they think you're their parents. Yeah, no. uh, but then, that was, a, that was actually a thing for me during graduate school, was to stop doing the lone wolf thing and to just say to people, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, can I ask you a question? Yeah, exactly. That's uh, that, it's one of the things you learn, right? And, and same thing true, and it's true in the work world, right? If you're going to go into an environment where you don't know anything or, or anybody, you have to ask for help a lot. So it works out well. Yeah, and undergraduate <laughs> negotiation. That's so funny because when I was an undergrad, I never would have considered that. Oh, neither did I. <laughs> neither did I. But on the other side, now kids, it happens these days. All the time. Yeah, kids these days. I love it. They're good at it too. They know how they they know how to manipulate people. And if I didn't have a kid myself, yeah, I would be far more vulnerable <laughs> to it. I'm gonna let Lynn uh, go back to his life. <laughs> Shut everything down. And uh, thank him for uh, taking the time out from his uh, busy business career uh, to be on VSI. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Lynn for being on the show. I'm actually trying to suck him in to be a member of the Beacon Consortium. Because a dynamic company like the one he works at is exactly the sort of place that we want our students working at. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with support from the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the study of evolution and action. Tune back in next week. I'll be celebrating the premiere of HBO's Game of Thrones by using the Stark family tree to demonstrate inclusive fitness theory. Thanks for listening.